Whoa, all right. Hello and welcome to the Popcorn Isn't Real. I'm coming off a high of talking to Michael Miner. Wow, that was crazy. It was so cool. He was so nice. Yeah, what he a was good great. Dude. You listeners will get to hear him too, because we're going to have some sound bites from him in this episode. What are we going to talk about, dude? Dude, we're talking about the 1988 film Deadly Weapon, written what? and directed by Michael Miner. Deadly Weapon. Like, I was surprised when I watched it. Because it reminded me of Flight of the Navigator, which we also covered. If you haven't, you know, listened to our episode on Flight of the Navigator, go check it out. I think it was a pretty good one. But it reminded me of Flight of the Navigator and that it's like this 80s sci-fi movie about a kid discovering some technology that makes him better than everyone else, right? Except it's so dark. Yeah. (laughs) Like, Like Flight of the Navigator is like upbeat, happy kid movie. This is like... This kid's getting beaten and abused by his evil dad and his dog gets killed in front of him and then he kills his evil dad and then he kills a bunch of other people (laughs) with his ray gun. It's like if in Flight of the Navigator, when he got the ship, he immediately just was like, and now I'm going to get my revenge on NASA. (laughs) And then just starts like smooshing them with the ship. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just like such a weird tone because like you see the kid discover this fantastic ray gun and you think oh this is gonna be fun and it's like no he's just gonna take hostages it feels like they were trying to take that that kind of 80s fun subgenre of like kid finds thing that gives him superpowers and it's fun and michael minor was like okay i'll do that but actually i'm just gonna make a movie about like uh, something real like like depression and suicide and like a guy turning to a life of crime i think that Deadly Weapon is obviously the story of a kid who falls into a life of crime and ultimately ends his life. And it is disguised as some sort of existential fantasy that isn't even a fantasy. (laughs) What could it be if not that? Like, they announce it right up front. They say... This is all in the mind of a 15-year-old boy. Like, (laughs) As much as it is possible, do you think you could give us a quick synopsis of this movie? Young boy likes to pretend that he is a spaceman who came to Earth and is getting bullied. So in his imagination, he, the spaceman, kills everyone on Earth. And lo and behold, one day this boy who fantasizes about killing everyone finds a ray gun, like an actual ray gun that can shoot out, you know, powerful energy blasts and kill anyone. He uses it to kill his abusive dad, and then he uses it to scare away some bullies and win the heart of a equally crazy girl. <laughs> I would say more crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, she's really into it. I mean, we'll talk uh, she's about She's like, her. oh, <laughs> evil ray gun wielding boy. I love it. Um, he then uses it to gather up random people that don't seem to have necessarily wronged him, like the sheriff and a priest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he brings them to an arcade where he ties them up and starts playing games. And several times talks about how he likes the power. (laughs) Well, yes, he likes the power, but he also keeps saying he wants to be alone right now. Anyway, eventually the military gets involved because they want this super high-tech weapon back. The media gets involved. They come in and interview him. It all spirals out of control till he eventually kills one of his hostages. At this point, he kind of breaks down, lets everyone go, tries to escape. Military tracks him down. They bring his mom in. Yeah, his estranged mom. And gets sniped and dies. Or did he? Because afterwards, there's a news story that says he didn't get killed by a sniper, but actually took his own life. So we've got a real treat for you today. We actually got a hold of the legendary Michael Miner, the creator of RoboCop and the writer and creator of Deadly Weapon. Uh, We interviewed him. 
And now that we've introduced the movie, here's what he had to say about his film, Deadly Weapon. I was supposed to direct the second unit for Robocop, and Charlie Band, who was one step below Roger Corman, and helped get financed films like Reanimator and other really B science fiction and fantasy films. I mean, really a brilliant subgenre that, that were financed by Charlie would go to the American film market and to a couple of markets in Europe. And he, he had spent money on a poster. So that was enough at that time to get low budget financing for the film that was then going to have a script written and be photographed. So there was no movie, but there was a movie poster. So I was in Robocop had been greenlit and they were doing pre-production. And then I went in and pitched to Charlie and his wife, Deborah Dion. They showed me a poster, Deadly Weapon, train crash, bazooka falling out of a box. And they said, okay, what about if a bunch of bikers found this weapon and then took over a small town and terrorized it? I thought, what if an alienated kid found the gun and he's been bullied and now he suddenly has power, which was sort of a semi-autobiographical. So they went for that. And I had $1.3, We shot for 30 days, actually 20 nights and 10 days in and around L.A., we made Deadly Weapon. And, and, and to me, the first 30 or 40 minutes until we get to the video arcade worked pretty damn well. But I kind of died there as a director yeah. because I, I didn't realize once you get in four walls, you don't want it to look like Three's Company, you know, or some bad sitcom. And it's much harder to shoot in a, in a confined space, especially with six characters being held hostage, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there are some good themes about power. I mean, I, I kept trying to keep that stuff in there. I think the reason that it got made was because it was, you know, there were all these pre-sales. It was a low-budget film that didn't have to please anybody but Charlie and Debbie and the foreign financiers. So there was a little bit more narrative freedom. So, yeah, this movie starts out with a caption on the screen. And that caption says... This movie takes place between the hours of midnight on Wednesday and dawn on Friday in the mind of a 15-year-old boy. I just isn't this the most amazing way you've ever like seen a movie start? Yes. Ever? And then expecting <laughs> like, it's so it, simple but so specific. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's extremely like specific. These it hours. hooks me in, but it, it also creates an expectation that it immediately reverses. There is no fantasy in this. This is not a fantasy film. <laughs> yep. No. But it tells us like in the he, beginning, this is a fantasy. Based on that, you think it's about to like kick off into like the never-ending story or something, or like Labyrinth. Right. I, I think it, it's telling that the language used from the hours of midnight on Wednesday and dawn on Friday, I think that's kind of how you would phrase it if like you saw in a news article, yes. it's like these people were held hostages from this time on this date to this time on the other date, right? Like it's a very specific time range. Right, why else give a range? <laughs> so, you know, I think that's telling us something right there. <laughs> yeah, this kid has got kind of a, a sad life. He gets bullied. His, his kind of. <laughs> oh my gosh, this kid has the most depressing life ever. <laughs> and Everyone hates him. Everyone. Everyone. Oh my gosh, it's insane how many people hate him. His teachers hate him. His his principal, his principal like beats, beats him, him for no reason. <laughs> like 
his dad kills his dog for no reason because he got mugged and robbed while buying alcohol Beer, for which his he dad have been doing. which he's not even old enough to do <laughs> like even if he got to the store he couldn't have bought the alcohol with nothing <laughs> but, his dad just with do nothing it? but coins not even dollar bills yeah this is coins <laughs> Coin. His dad just no, gives him a bunch, or his stepdad gives him a bunch of coins. <laughs> his sister hates him. The bullies hate him. His priest hates him for unknown reasons. As soon as he like asks his priest for help, his priest calls someone's like, "Yeah, that weird kid who I hate is asking for help. It's probably bad news." Well, <laughs> right? I, I mean, I think this is a little Nobody bit telling. Nobody on earth likes this boy <laughs> because I think we're seeing it from his perspective. And from his perspective, he's a misunderstood. Uh, traveler from another world right like he, he believes he's an alien of some kind and uh yeah. you know or he tells himself he is to right, escape the right partiality. yeah whether he really <laughs> believes it or not i think i think he knows he's not um yeah so he's at school and they're in creative writing class and they're reading some of their stories and there's a nerdy boy who reads a story that ends with the line now if you're asking yourself how often fantasy and reality meet well only the master storyteller knows for sure but, like, this was the question I was asking myself the entire time watching this movie, especially after it starts with that caption, and everything seems to be reality. I'm like, so what is fantasy? Well, probably the ray gun. The gun. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the gun's not. The ray is, right? Like, <laughs> no. it was just a gun. <laughs> Kid found a gun. When we were talking to Michael Miner, I asked him about that scene where the nerd reads that passage about the creator, and only the creator knows for sure what happened. Here's what he had to say. Uh, you know, I love that reading. I, I wish I was smart enough to be going for that, but thank you. <laughs> it, 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 I was I was being much more sort of action tropey. So the main character is named Zeke, I believe, Zeke Robinson. So he gets up and he has to read his story that he just wrote. And he tells a story about aliens. It's about aliens that like <laughs> no, start chomping <laughs> off people's balls. Like that's the whole story. It's like yeah, some al aliens came and they were fighting with the humans, and so the humans couldn't procreate. They started chewing off their scrotums. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's an amazing story. And this young woman in class <laughs> named Tracy, who is important later, is so into this story. She loves it. She's like, I want to hear how it ends. <laughs> it's a really great shot because, like, the nerdy kid is just rolling his eyes. And there's also another young woman in the front row who's just doing an amazing job of just staring out the window in a trance like she's not paying attention at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, to, to be fair to this kid, this story is shocking and attention-grabbing, but apparently not for this class. No, because the teacher girl. takes it away, says it's <laughs> disgusting, sends him to the principal's office, where the principal takes out a paddle, like a literal paddle, yeah, and beats the crap him. out of him. <laughs> so we're laughing a whole bunch, even though we're talking about something extremely dark. But I, I need to point out, this is the tone of the movie. This movie is very silly. Yeah, it's, it's like intentionally funny and campy and silly. And yet it is dealing with extremely dark subject matter. You know, this is written by Michael Miner. So think RoboCop, right? Like it has a similar tone to RoboCop in that like horrible, horrible things are happening. But it kind of makes you giggle, right? <laughs> like where you're like, oh, <laughs> like I shouldn't be laughing at this, but that's kind of funny. Oh, yeah, it's right? definitely <laughs> got that tone. <laughs> So yeah, he's uh, he goes to the store with coins that his dad gave him so that he can buy whiskey, and uh, he gets beat up by some bullies. No, they don't just beat him up. 
they pick him up and then like use him as a jackhammer. <laughs> like they hold him by his legs and pound his head into the ground over and over. It's a cartoonish scene. It reminded me of the bullies in It, right? Yeah. Like these ridiculous out of control bullies, which, you know, going from your perspective on this movie would be how he sees them, right? Like to him, they are ridiculous out of control <laughs> bullies when really they're probably just well, bullies. And then Tracy is kind of like, hey, don't don't bully him. But like, <laughs> she she is the girlfriend of one of the bullies, and she barely even seems to notice him. And then they keep bullying him, and just like step on his broken arm. Yeah. <laughs> and then he comes home, and his dad's like, "You didn't get my whiskey," and he's mad, and he goes to his room, and his dad literally breaks the door down with a bat. First, his sister is like, "Uh oh, it's too quiet." And then takes her boyfriend and, like, flees. Zeke's sister and her boyfriend are watching a movie, and it's Terror Vision. So here's Michael Miner's reasoning behind why Terror Vision makes an appearance in his movie Deadly Weapon. That was one of Charlie's films, so we got it for free. And uh, I had a choice (laughs) of uh, films. I looked at a bunch of clips, and that one seemed to resonate the best with what was going on. So so it was clearly an in-house, a, a gift from uh, the company. When, when his stepfather comes in, his boy literally jumps out the window, like just yep. crashes <laughs> just through the window. He himself out the window. He's out of there. <laughs> it's really good. I just love that scene. Oh, it's so good. No, it's very, very good. <laughs> right, right. And then so, of course, earlier in the film, in a river, he found a box that has like a ray gun in it. I believe that he actually just found a gun somewhere. Okay, so he jumps out the window to get his gun. And as he is getting his gun, he accidentally flips on a radio that says a lot of strange things. But one of the things it says is, my mother always told me, don't let anyone push you around. (laughs) And as we know, Zeke has a very strange relationship with his mother, and he's about to stop letting people push him around. So I I do believe that radio is in his head, (laughs) kind of telling him, egging him on. (laughs) That's interesting. I didn't even notice the radio. Yeah, it says a bunch of different random things, but I could only pick up like really that one line. And so his dad's coming for him. He says, stand back, I'll shoot. His dad doesn't even care. He's just like, hey, watch me kill your dog. <laughs> I'm like, geez, dude. <laughs> so the, the stepdad is like, nobody can mess with me, monster boy. Interesting that he calls Zeke monster boy. He says, hell boy, the man monster's coming for you. I'm on the first step. And then Zeke is like, I'm warning you, man. And then he goes, I'm on the second step as he's stepping forward. And Zeke says, (laughs) stay back. And and he says, I'm on the third step. And um, that's, of course, when Zeke shoots him. And in what we see, this ray gun lights the dad's head on fire and he runs out. And the next time we see him, he's just a crisp. Like he's just been burned up. I know Michael Miner was very proud of that headlighting on fire <laughs> <Yeah>. thing. <laughs> it was a pretty good stunt. But the ray gun never does that later. And the ray guns, what it does is very inconsistent. I believe because yeah. Zeke is clearly making up what it does in his head to kind of protect his psyche th- from the fact that he's killing people. And he was mm-hmm. certainly defending himself from an abusive stepdad. Yeah, But I do think at this point, he really goes off the rails because he just murdered his stepdad and he knows he's in trouble. Michael Miner had some thoughts on this part of the movie. Here's what he had to say. No, a very good observation. My father was an alcoholic. And so Mm. I built out from there. He wasn't abusive. It's not revenge porn, 
But there are these Ten Commandments, and one of them is, you know, the father crosses a red line when he kills the dog, and the kid is empowered momentarily by this uh, finding this experimental weapon. He's able to act out something that would normally be repressed, and it spins out of control from there. I think that was part of the touchstone for me that, you know, you keep sympathy with the kid because um, he's attempting to equalize things just in in a not very civilized manner. While we don't actually see him committing too many crimes in this movie, we do later find out in the news report at the very end that says he committed suicide, they say that he was wanted for murder, vandalism, and robbery. And so I think that's a good way of knowing that the things that he does with that gun are not actually what's happening. So he goes to this gas station and meets the bullies again. He shoots a building and the building just explodes, like just a massive explosion. I don't think that's Mm -hmm. what happened. I think maybe he even shot one of the bullies. I don't know. But he probably just shot up the store, shot some bullets to scare these bullies away. And then they left. Okay. Tracy, who was with the bullies, comes up to him and she says, Are you okay? Oh my God, I told them to stop. Are you bleeding? <laughs> now, this line doesn't make any sense because in no, this it makes scene, no sense. they were not bullying him. They did nothing to him. It's like what he wishes she'd said to him last time. Right, <laughs> right. exactly. Like, she did not tell them to stop in this scene. And she's either lying or I think, yeah, it's it's possibly what he, I think, what he wished that she had done last time when she was just like, don't bully Zeke. Right, so you think in reality she was like, don't hurt me, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he heard, I love you. <laughs> yeah, I think so, yes. <laughs> and because well, when the sheriff comes and tells him to put their hands up, he says, is that you, Zeke Robinson? Dang, boy, what you gone and done now? <laughs> Possibly implying he'd maybe yeah. done stuff like this before. Well, everyone implies that. They keep saying he's a troublemaker, just like his family. <laughs> <laughs> and then he shoots his Reagan and says, you put your hands up, sheriff. And this is when he asks Tracy if she's got a car. And then they get in her car and drive away after he also forces the sheriff in the trunk. I think this is this is him taking Tracy hostage and stealing her car. That was a big trunk. How many people did he maximum have in that trunk at one time? Uh, four <laughs> people. That's what I one thought. of them was, was like, like a younger teenager, but actually two of them were rather large and overweight. <laughs> Do you think he actually had four people in the trunk, or was he just imagining that? Or <laughs> I don't think so. There's way too many people in that <laughs> trunk. <laughs> I I don't think that he had four people in that trunk. Maybe he had three? I'm not sure. He did somehow take people hostage, though. We know that. Maybe he didn't gather yeah. them up from around town. Maybe they were just in the arcade when he gets there. I don't know. In the car, Tracy's getting close to him, kind of flirting with him. Tracy's personality throughout this whole movie just changes on a dime. And I think it is whatever Zeke imagines it to be at any given moment, (laughs) which I think is actually genius, right? (laughs) Like, because so often, you know, women are kind of depicted in movies, especially in the 80s, as being what the guy just wants them to be. But I think in this movie, like, clearly, it is only because he's imagining her as what he wants her to be. Right. It's like in The Simpsons when Marge is like, Homer, you're only hearing what you want to hear. And he says, yes, I would like like an omelet omelet right about now. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> what did Homer hear? Here it is. Homer, like, would you Homer, like an I omelet? I would like right to now? make you an omelet right now. <laughs> would you like one? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no uh, natural way to phrase that question that could get the response that he gives. No. <laughs> so he goes to this church, and there's a reverend who is drinking and listening to a recording that says, the general feeling I get when I think about Jesus is that he was just a man. Well, let me tell you a little secret. He was. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I want you to all get down on your knees and repeat after me. Is this the sin or the sinner? Is this the sin or the sinner? And then he repeats that many times. I kind of think that's uh, part of Zeke's problem like this is in his mind is this the sin or the sinner like is he just a person who did a bad thing or is he a bad person no i get it i I can i can dig it so he tells the reverend i'm in trouble and then reverend is like oh immediately without even wasting a second he's like i'm gonna go call someone else right yeah he says is that you zeke robinson what kind of trouble are you talking about and then zeke's all he says is you don't understand Things are just happening too fast. He keeps saying that. He keeps talking about things happening too fast. What do you think he means by this? I think that it's just the way that, like, he killed his stepdad, and now it feels like everything's just snowballing. Things are just getting worse and worse. Now he's got hostages, (laughs) you know? (laughs) He did it himself, though. It's not like someone's forcing him to do this. But after he says things are happening so fast, the Reverend is like, wait, wait, right there. We can work something out. Why is he saying we can work something out? He doesn't know anything at this point. According to what we've seen, the Reverend knows nothing. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. But then he immediately calls someone on the phone and Zeke picks up the phone and we hear their conversation and he says, get over here quick, Herb. He's all upset about something. And then Herb, who we later find out is the mayor of the town, says, damn that Edwin Robinson, who was his stepdad, can't even match a scrawny little 15-year-old like Zeke. I'm not sure what that means. To me, it was implying that Zeke told them that he killed his dad. And they're like, what kind of a guy can't take on like a 15-year-old? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I think that's what I got out of it is that in reality, they know that he's a murderer. That's kind of what like, I got oh, out of crap. it too. Yeah. <laughs> and the Reverend is like, you know that and I know that, but this boy's off in the head. I don't trust him. Never did. <laughs> and then the mayor's like, all right, I'll be over there in five minutes. <laughs> Wait, it was the mayor he called? Yeah. It's this fat guy with glasses who is actually the dad of the nerdy boy who read that other story in class, but he calls him mayor throughout the rest of the movie. So so he took the mayor yes, hostage? He did. There should have been more news people there. <laughs> that one news person, like, I thought he was overkill. No, he was underkill. <laughs> no, man. Like, oh, my God. a crazy story. But Tracy does hug him and say, hey, Zeke, I love it when you fire the gun. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> Which, once again, is him just imagining her saying what he would like her to say. (laughs) So he calls his mom and she's just like, I told you not to call me here. And he's like, no, wait, mom, I'm in serious trouble. She's like, where's Edwin bastard? Did he put you up to this? And he's like, no, wait, mom, things are getting really crazy right now. (laughs) And she's like, look, Zeke, I can't face it again. I can't face it. Don't call me again. Just an important note that he is estranged from his mother, but he really loves his mother. Like, that seems to be the one true love in his life in this movie is his mom but she does not want anything to do with him right right after the scene he goes up to tracy says tracy i'm in trouble i don't see a way out and then the very next scene he pulls up to an arcade and his 
monologue, his voiceover says, the visitor decided a long time ago not to tell anybody about his secret, but everything's looking pretty cool right now. Yep. <laughs> the, is All of a sudden, he's like, things are good. The visitor feels good. <laughs> so maybe he'll tell Tracy. I don't know. Uh, he was like, Trying to reassure himself or something. Yeah, in the previous scene, he was saying things are bad. Things are really bad. And then he's like, that nah, things are pretty good. I don't know. You know, yeah, he's he's swinging wildly between movie. different mood swings. And I, I I think it just shows that his his mental state is, is he's out unhinged. of whack. Yeah, he's <laughs> totally unhinged. So he goes, he takes people hostage in the arcade. We do get a lot of scenes of the FBI and the military kind of talking about what they're going to do about this hostage situation. I think that is all imagined. I think that it's possibly realistic in that they may have been saying those things, but I think Zeke is imagining what the cops are talking about outside and how they think they can deal with him. And I think that this is evidenced by the fact that there is one cop who is extremely sympathetic to him. Yeah, Really, really nice. This movie is different from other movies in that, like, the top military person in charge of this operation, like, the big cop who's supposed to take down the criminal, instead of being, like, ridiculously over-the-top, like, ready to act and ready to kill, like, in most movies, like, in Die Hard Mm -hmm. or, you know, other movies, he's, like, super sympathetic. He's like, man, it's just a kid. Oh, we got to think of another way. No, we can't do this. And I think that this is in the kid's mind. I think a lot of times criminals will sort of fashion these stories for themselves of like, well, maybe someday, you know, maybe if the cops kill me, you know, someone will look up my story and someone will feel sympathy for me, right? They'll know that, you know, I was just a poor, messed up kid kind of thing, which is what this one cop who's sympathetic to him keeps saying, right? Like, it's like his his mom abandoned him, his dad's in jail. So it's around this point that the sheriff starts to kind of like socially engineer him and try and become his buddy. And he's like, yeah, I can really see things from your perspective, Zeke. I know what's going on. Man, this must be tough for you. And then one of the police outside just like shows up out of nowhere and goes hog wild, just starts shooting and shooting and shooting out of nowhere. And he shoots the sheriff by accident. Mm -hmm. There are a couple times in this movie where Tracy does something where she takes Zeke's gun and sets it away from him. And I do think that to some extent, perhaps those are actually happening. And again... Like she was trying to do that. <laughs> as we've been told by the movie itself, it's intentionally supposed to be hard for us to know what is fantasy and what is reality. But like she starts dancing with him and sets his gun aside. And then the sheriff tries to get the gun, but the arcade owner stops him. We're led to believe the arcade owner is like a friend of Zeke's. I don't actually think that's true. I think it's because he's just like, dude, don't be a hero, right? Don't don't go for the gun. Okay. If we needed any further proof for the fact that some events in this movie clearly happen out of sync, all of a sudden the bullies just show up at the arcade and go to the arcade. They just show up and kind of like walk in. Walk in. The the (laughs) arcade that the police can't get into and are like pointing snipers. The military have surrounded. (laughs) Right. They just walk in and they just start playing games there. And they say to like the head bully says to Tracy, you're my girl. And she's like, no, I'm not. I am Zeke's girl now. And I mean, obviously, that's pure fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) The bully asks Zeke, nice piece, referring to the gun. Where'd you get it? He says, I found it in the river, which I think is actually true. And maybe he had found this gun earlier. Like, I think this this scene at the arcade with the bullies happened before the hostage situation. Like, it had to have. Like, And perhaps they did see that he had a gun and they're like, hey, where'd you get it? He's like, I found it in the river. I think the reason that Zeke is flashing back to this moment when he talked to the bullies at the arcade is because he knows he's about to get arrested 
And in this moment with the bullies at the arcade, uh, one of the bullies asks him, hey, Zeke, you a minor? He warns Zeke about going to prison, basically. He's like, you know, young kids like you don't last long in prison. And I think it's because clearly what's on Zeke's mind right now, the reason he's remembering this thing that clearly did not happen during a hostage situation is that um, he's remembering what this bully told him about what happens to people in prison, and he doesn't want to go there. So do you think there's any deeper meaning behind that question? Are you a minor? (laughs) I mean, we already (laughs) talked about this with Michael Minor. No, no, it was a a thinly veiled autobiography within the context of the teen genre tropes. As as with all writers, you know, everything we write is somewhat autobiographical. We pull from our own lives. Well, one of the reasons I like this movie so much, even though it's absolutely insane and off the wall, is that it has a lot of heart. Like there were clearly lots of stuff in this movie that were written from the heart. And there's a lot of real emotion there. And I find that interesting. (laughs) No, definitely. So then the hostages try to escape and he shoots the reverend. He he doesn't even try. Like his brain doesn't make up anything for that one. Like the reverend doesn't explode. It's not like. No, he's just got a big hole in him. <laughs> like it's, it's like a slightly exaggerated gunshot wound. <laughs> yep. And then there's this stuff with like a reporter who comes in and, and interviews Zeke. Well, and he keeps trying to get people, just random people to sign this contract what does that contract say? He's like, it'll make you rich. It'll make me rich. What? <laughs> right. Well, and this could also be Zeke imagining, like, a lot of times criminals like to imagine their their notoriety in the future. Like, oh, movies will be made about me kind of thing, you know? Like the Zodiac yeah, Killer okay. kind of thing. And that could be him sort of just imagining, like, oh, yeah, this guy wants my life story. He's going to make it into a movie after I'm dead sort of thing. Well, but a reporter did get in to interview him because the tape plays at the end. When the a reporter is interviewing him, he says, I'm sick and tired, worried that I ain't got a future. It's a lot of responsibility having all this power, and I haven't decided yet whether I like it or not. I mean, just a chilling, crazy thing for a person holding hostages to say. <laughs> yep. So the arcade manager gives him his car. I think that this is not necessarily to help Zeke, but I think it's just to get Zeke out of there. And this is also around the time when Zeke just decides, you can go. He lets all the hostages go. I think he's kind of rethought this situation. Is like, no, I got to get out of here. And luckily the arcade manager gives him his car. Okay. So you think that specific scene played out in reverse in real life? Yes, I do. (laughs) Because in the movie, he says, everyone go. And then that guy is like, Hey, I like you so much you can have my car. Right. <laughs> you think it was the other way yeah. around where that guy's like, Zeke, you better get out of here. You're in trouble. Here, have my car. It's okay. And then Zeke says, you know what? You're right. Everyone's free. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you think that's how it happened. Yeah. Okay. And I think that uh, further evidence to this is the fact that Tracy's like, I'm coming with you. No, no, she's not. He realizes he needs some no. insurance and <laughs> he he's like, you're coming with, with me. And then while he's talking, he says something that, you know, probably a lot of criminals do, which is, I didn't kill any of those people. They made me. And then he goes through yeah. every single person he killed <laughs> and why he had to do it. <laughs> he definitely killed them. <laughs> Here's another weird scene where he kind of gets away with the truck, and then he and Tracy are just laying out under the stars. I'm not 100% sure if any of this happens. Also, she paints stars on his face with the makeup she stole. (laughs) Also, at this point, he imagines the law enforcement saying, we'll say he committed suicide. It's just that simple, but they're actually planning on shooting him. 
Why would they need to say he committed suicide? They don't need to say that. He's a murderer. Also, yeah, and cops shoot people all the time, right? They don't, uh-huh. especially people with guns who have killed people. Yeah, no, like he's he's a murderer with a gun. They could shoot him, and no one would even question it. There'd be no investigation. Um, then I believe Zeke imagines his mom talking to the head of the FBI, and the head of the FBI becomes sort of a father figure who is probably like his real father and definitely a lot like his stepdad because his mom is saying something that no mother would ever say but possibly a son might feel that she would say about him she's like i don't care about my son i left him with my ex that's exactly how he would feel right like she didn't care about me (laughs) she left me with her ex yeah and then the fbi guy just smacks her in the face like he just she just smacks her in the face and this is clearly in zeke's mind like no matter how crazy this fbi guy is you're not gonna smack someone in the face but zeke does remember his mom getting smacked in the face a lot i'm sure i'm sure that's why she left you know Mm -hmm. one other tiny moment is that the guy in the military who is sympathetic to zeke On a computer screen, he's looking at a typed up letter from Zeke's dad in prison to Zeke. And it's like his dad saying things like, oh, yeah, physically I'm fine. But and then it says a bunch of other things. He turns around and says, he's talking about aliens and heaven and God. I know what he's thinking. It doesn't make any sense because the letter he was reading was not even something that Zeke wrote. No, he wasn't. And his dad wasn't talking about any of those things. He certainly was not. I think that this is Zeke's mind getting really confused and just putting stuff together like, oh, maybe after I'm dead, they'll understand me. Maybe they'll read some of my letters that my dad sent me. They'll they'll read some of my writings. They'll they'll know what I was why I did what I did, you know. He he's trying to find a little hope okay. for himself. At this point, he puts the gun to his head, like he, he's gonna kill himself, right? And then mm-hmm. his mother shows up and he says, it's the mothership, <laughs> which I think is, is actually a pretty cool part of the movie. I do think that he actually does kill himself right there. I think that he, as he's killing himself, he has this sort of wish fulfillment hero fantasy where his mom shows up. He gets in the car with his mom. The FBI guy is yelling at his mom. and He's like, stop yelling at my mom. And then he shoots the FBI guy. So he's like kind of redeemed himself in a way for being a killer. Now he's a hero. He saved his mom, which is probably something he wanted to do his whole life, seeing his mom get abused. And But I don't think any of that actually happens. And then there's kind of a thing where like the guy who's sympathetic to him tries to save him, but he gets sniped by the police anyway. I think he just killed himself. Yeah. Uh, At the end of the movie, we get the news report that says a young boy who committed robbery, vandalism, and murder took his own life. And then they show the, the clip. My last evidence is just that this was supposed to be originally a sequel to a film called Laser Blast about a kid who finds like a wrist-mounted laser that kind of turns him evil, like but like into an actual monster, like his face changes and uh, and he starts like oh, killing people. <laughs> so like Star Kid, but evil. And but like Laser Blast sounds kind of like the name that this movie maybe should have had. Like, oh, it's a fantasy about a kid who finds a weapon, you know, gives him powers, right? But instead, this was called Deadly Weapon, which is, you know, we associate that with the phrase assault with a deadly weapon, right? It Clearly, mm-hmm. they were trying to totally ground this. Oh, it's, you know, fantasy. But no, really, this is reality. All this essentially really happened, but just in a different way than what we saw. We're never going to be quite sure what was real and what was fake. But uh, we can certainly be sure that this kid was a crazy murderer who took his own life. <laughs> 
Well, I really uh, was pushing for Kid with a Ray Gun. That would have been a good title, too. <laughs> because it was pre-sold as Deadly Weapon, I don't think that Charlie had the flexibility to uh, turn it over to the, 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 the pre-sales people with a different title. I mean, I don't know everything that happened. But yeah, I mean, that, those were basically most of my interpretations on it. But I just, I love the way it is utterly silly, but utterly depressing at the same time. And that's just a tone that you don't get very often. And I love it whenever I find it. So I'm very happy that I, I found this film. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I got kind of spoiled by the freedom. I mean, there, there were not, there was not a studio overreach, you know, especially these days, the studios are very calculated. There are a lot of gatekeepers. It's it's much harder to have narrative freedom these days, unfortunately. All right. Well, what do you think? I think that uh, it's it's a good theory because, I, like I said at the beginning of this episode, I don't see any other way to interpret this movie. So I'll give it to you. Plus, it's clever. It's fun. Like you said, it takes this horrible, depressing situation and kind of makes it funny <laughs> a little bit. Damn, I love that reading, man. Leaf, that's really a lot of fun. I, I, I'm, I'm glad you got all, all those things out of it. I, uh, I appreciate it. I absolutely loved it. It was fun to watch, and I think it did a great job of that, and I love the tone, and Michael Miner is a genius, man. He's an amazing Oh, filmmaker. absolutely. He's amazing. <laughs> his social satire, his, his comedy, everything he does, it's great. So before we ended our interview with Michael Miner, I asked him if he had anything, any projects cooking up that he wanted to tell us about or anything that he wanted to promote. And here's what he had to say. Um, I've got a couple of things that I've been working very hard on. One of them is called Smart Mouse. And I've worked on that for over six years. It's a streaming series about a woman working off a felony whistleblowing crime who accidentally discovers that some intelligence in the web, inside the internet, is manipulating things and causing accidents. And as she digs further, she realizes that it's a super artificial intelligence which has achieved consciousness. And I have a pilot. I've got uh, 10 episodes outlined. I have a director and a producer attached, and we're just getting ready to try to cast it. We haven't set it up anywhere else yet, but it's called Smart Mouse. And, and the other one is called Escape from Hell. And it's New Year's Eve in a crematorium like Die Hard in a, in a high rise where a special forces guy has to fake his own death to try to escape being killed. Uh, and he wakes up on a slab uh, about to be cut up and have his body parts sold off. And he fights his way to freedom against a group of mercenaries who are sent in to kill him. And I, I wrote the first draft of that over five years ago. It's called Escape from Hell. You know, I may I may be old and I'm a, a lot, I've lost a step, but I'm still trying. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I mean, that's great because I love your work. <laughs> keep please keep keep making stuff for me to watch. <laughs> Definitely, Torvald and I will be there for whatever the next Michael Miner film is that comes out. <laughs> oh yeah, but yeah, I mean, 
Other than that, thanks for thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Music was provided by Christine. Everyone out there listening to this great podcast, just remember the popcorn is not real. <laughs> <laughs>